Nation Reaching Nations is focused on highlighting innovative stories from cross-cultural, local, and global missions, missions from the majority world, and culturally contextual teaching. The missionaries' stories and idea of this podcast are based on connecting through Houston and serve as an example of how the gospel is spreading from everywhere to everywhere. Our hope is that the stories that you hear on this podcast will help equip you to reach those around you. So I have this this exclamation slash question written up here on the board. Probably some of you were asked this by your mother at some point. When you leave the front door open, right? Were you born in a barn? And the obvious reply to that is, well, no, therefore close the door. Uh, So the question is, how would Jesus answer this question, were you born in a barn? And uh, we're going to go ahead and we're going to read Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. And uh, then I'll, I'll share some things that might surprise you. This is usually the segment of my Christmas liturgy where people really start not enjoying it because it starts breaking with tradition pretty strongly. Uh, before, it's just, oh, this is interesting information. We'd never thought about the genealogy this way or something like that. But now it's really kind of rewriting, you know, paintings that you might have in your house or nativity scenes that you've seen. And so uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 1, it says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius, the governor of Syria, uh, was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to each be uh, to be registered with his wife Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, most people probably have the image of this story of Mary and Joseph racing into town. I know this is the image I had when I was a child. Frantically knocking on all of these different doors, looking for a house to have the baby in, uh, which as a child always seemed really weird, uh, you know, understanding hospital births in the, in the modern world. And she's, they're frantically knocking from door to door to door. They just barely get there in time, and there's no room anywhere. And all of a sudden, uh, they wind up in an inn, but not in an inn because there's no room in the inn, like a hotel. And so they're out in the barn because that's where the animals go. Okay, now in this understanding, I've made a lot of assumptions about culture and society that are based on my culture and society and how we keep animals and whatnot. Um, A lot of this tradition, actually, uh, we come by it honestly, maybe without even knowing it. There's this book called uh, The uh, Proto-Evangelium of James, which means basically the first gospel or the pre-gospel of James. Um, And this is a book that's written around 200 AD. So all of the books in the New Testament, I would argue, are written before AD 70. Because writing as a Jewish person, the most significant event of that time would be 
the, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple there. And so if you're writing as a Jewish writer and you don't mention that, that means you're writing beforehand. In the same way that if you write a book in the modern age about Islam and you don't mention 9-11 as an American, it either means you're writing beforehand or you're coming from a different perspective where 9-11 is not a big event for you. And so I would say most of the New Testament books are written relatively early. And so by 200, we're you know three generations away from uh, Jesus and even the first apostles at this point. Um, and so you can actually find this book online, the Proto-Evangelium of James. Um, it's fairly short, maybe 10 pages worth of reading. And this is an imaginative, uh, helpful, I'm using air quotes on purpose, it's a helpful reimagining of the Christmas story. And so there were many early... Uh, writings that are that we don't consider canonical. We don't put them in the Bible because they're written much later by people we don't know, and they have very weird things to say, like this book does. Um, so they're not they're not Bible books, but uh, there's this group of people who believe that mystically that God gave them extra revelation to help explain parts of the stories that aren't that the Bible doesn't seem so concerned with. You know, like, what's Jesus' childhood like? We don't know. The Bible doesn't say. I mean, we know his birth. We know that scene when he's 12 and goes to the temple. And then next time, it's uh, the wedding at Canaan. And he's launching his ministry. And there's a whole lot of gaps there. And the New Testament writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, don't seem to care. Uh, And so many of these imaginative, helpful, mystical works are designed to kind of fill in the gaps for us. So in this... uh, in this one, whoever wrote this isn't even aware of the basic geography of Israel, so they had not actually been there. Compare that with Luke, who talks about which way the wind is blowing when they're somewhere. I mean, it's very clear, a, a clear difference in how, in the writing styles. Um, but in this story, Joseph is an old man who already has two sons uh, when he's betrothed to Mary. And so he's kind of doing it out of obligation, kind of a Boaz Ruth situation, but much more begrudging than that story. Uh, that that story seemed to be that he was excited to be the kinsman redeemer, um, and so Mary had grown up in the temple, and she married Joseph when she was twelve. Now I know, f- coming from the modern time, child marriages seem weird to us. Uh, I don't know if she was twelve or not, but we do know she probably was much younger. Uh, than we would imagine her to be. She's probably not 18. She's probably, you know, mid-teenage years. But in this story, she grows up in the temple and marries Joseph when he's 12. And it's the Joseph and Mary rush into Bethlehem just in time. Um, Joseph leaves Mary in a cave. And he rushes into town to try to find a midwife and brings a midwife out. And the midwife is incredulous. And uh, not to be gross, I'm just literally quoting from it. But she says, unless I thrust my finger and search the parts, I will not, uh, I will not believe that a virgin has brought forth a child. And she tries this. And according to the legend, her hand begins to feel like it's on fire. And so presumably this is judgment for her lack of faith of what God had said. So it's kind of like a little Zacharias theme to it of he doesn't believe and then God kind of plays a joke on him. Um, And the story closes where the Magi visit Jesus in the cave. um, And and that's kind of how a lot of our tradition of the whole rushed event uh, came about. Um, is from this story. Even if we're unaware that this story is in the background of Christian thinking, it it is there in the background of Christian thinking nonetheless. And so tradition begets tradition, and then before long we're drawing pictures of Jesus in a barn, and nobody knows why. Um, But, you know, our paintings look more like a Norman Rockwell than they do like ancient Near Eastern village life. 
So let's rescue this biblical narrative from this helpful, again, air quotes, uh, reimagination of the story. Um, and I think the first thing that's important for us to see is, is who is Joseph and, and what's his, who's his family? So they don't have last names at this time, but if we were to give Joseph a last name, what would his last name be? Think back to your lineage. Where's he? What's his line? Invert. Yeah, he's the line of David. And actually, if so, Mark and Luke each have a genealogy, one for Mary, one for Joseph, and they're both from the line of David. So here we have two children of David. What city are they in? City of David. So you have children of David in the city of David. Uh, they've got a place to stay. So we have, to, we have to deal with the whole question of there's no room for them and what is the inn and all of these other elements. But the first thing is this whole idea that they are foreigners and strangers and would be kind of cold calling on doors. I mean, imagine your hometown growing up. If you grew up in a small town and were to go back there today, you probably have some people that would remember who you are enough to go, oh, let me help you out in some way. And so this idea that they don't have any knowledge or any connections or anything there is probably not really all that accurate because they're both children of David, ultimately, and they're both in the city of David. And so they would have had some kind of family connection. On family name alone, that would be enough for someone to provide them hospitality. Again, in this part of the world, hospitality for strangers is a very common thing, a very common thing. And so uh, this would not have been... A shock at all uh, for them to come in and, and receive receive some kind of uh, some kind of help. Uh, worst case scenario, Joseph would have there. Bethlehem is in the area of Judea, which is also where Elizabeth is from. So worst case scenario, if it was such a crisis pregnancy, if we can use that term, or a crisis delivery, which is how it's implied through art, uh, then at least. Joseph would have left Mary with Elizabeth, not just gone into town by himself. And so a lot of understandings of the Christmas story are kind of built around this idea of they're, they're primitive people who don't really understand sex and pregnancy and delivery and all this other stuff. And granted, they don't have the modern medicine that we have, but they see enough births to know, hey, it takes about yay long before a woman's ready to give birth. And let's not be on the road when that happens, particularly since on the road there means days of travel, not just a little jaunt to, you know, over here like we do. Um, and so th there, there's huge significance that Joseph and Mary are children of David in the city of David. They would not have been lacking a place to stay. Now, we think they're lacking a place to stay because of that word um, in, uh, which I'll deal with in a second. But I want us to look at, you know, were Mary and Joseph actually rushing? Because, again, there's this sense of urgency in many of our retellings of the Christmas story that they are rushing through town, trying to, you know, kind of trying to beat out the shot clock, as it were, uh, before Mary delivers, and then they finally settle on this place. But I would say that they're not actually rushing. Look at verse 6. Um, in verse 6, I just lost it. Uh, it says, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth while they were there so they had already been here for some time we don't know how long 
But again, not assuming that Joseph is a primitive ape, assuming that he has some concept of, and, and people in his family saying, hey, you know you can't be out on the road during this part of her pregnancy. Let's assume that he got there, rather than assuming stupidity, let's assume that families understand what families understand, and that is we take care of people in our family that are giving birth uh, in the same way that we do today. This, this verse would indicate while they were there, there's already a time period that's passed of them being in the town of Bethlehem which would make common sense of people who are about to give birth to a baby, of let's get there before the baby's ready to be born. That way we're not in the middle of nowhere giving birth to a baby. And so they're already there. So it was while the time that they were there, it came, the time came for her to give birth. So I would say this whole idea of rushing itself is not even actually there in the text. The text would imply that they were there for some kind of time before she gave birth. Which leads us to the question, well, if they didn't stay in the cave, uh, and if there's no room in the inn, where did they stay? So I think here it's important to understand kind of the, the household structure of a basic house at this time. Um, I was actually going through this, this study with our home group a while back, and we had a young Egyptian man in there. And I drew the chart that I'm about to draw for you on the board. I, we drew this out, and he looks at that, and he goes... Oh, that's my grandmother's house. And he meant, today, this is my grandmother's house. And so, again, even in parts of the world today, their houses are still established like this. So a lot of, a lot of houses there, this is kind of a top view, would be either a one-room house, and everything kind of happens in that one room, or there would be kind of like a side room off to the side. So if you, well, the side view would look something like this. You know, here's the, here's the one room, and then there would be kind of a side room thing here with maybe a, you know, a gate. Uh, and then a lot of times there would be a little pass-through window here. And so you would keep animals right here. Essentially, in the house is where you keep animals. Now, some, uh, some houses, if they were a, a little bit nicer house, they would have a second floor. So most, most are like one room, one floor houses. Bigger ones would have two rooms, and then larger ones would have an upper floor. Uh, or they would just sleep on the roof because they're, they're flat roofs. It doesn't really rain there. They don't have to deal with water. And so ones that would have another one might have a second room on it, uh, on top, okay? And this is called the guest room. The Greek word is katalima, um, which interestingly is what this word for in, in verse 7, is translated as. Now there's only one New Testament writer that uses this word katalima, and he only uses it twice. And that person is, obviously, Luke. The other place that Luke uses Catalima is when Jesus tells them, hey, I want you to go uh, and find a man <clears throat> who's going to lead you to the Catalima where I'm going to have my Passover. And so Jesus celebrates the Last Supper in the Catalima, which is not an inn as in a motel. It is a upper room. It's a guest room. So, again, this changes the story dramatically. If they're not in a cave, and if they're not in a barn, then where was it that there was no room? Again, this speaks to my other point of they had enough time, and they would have been recognized. So basically, she has him somewhere else because there's no room in this upper room. This is the guest room where the guests would have stayed. So if you have this house structure right here, this is where the animals are going to stay. This is where a lot of the cooking and daily activity kind of thing happens, and then this would be kind of sleeping, resting quarters, guest quarters, etc. Probably everyone sleeping, you know, together in, in one big room. Um, 
And so if we understand that there was no room in the inn, meaning there was no room in the upper room, um, which is exactly how it's translated elsewhere in Luke, uh, this changes the idea. This means they were already at a house. They had already been there for some time while she was giving birth. And it's at this time where she's a lady about to give birth in a... At, like a for us, like imagine Christmas time at your house when everybody's over. Now imagine everybody's staying in like one big room, like a lock-in or something. And now imagine one of you is giving birth. Uh, I'm guessing whoever's giving birth in that context does not want to give birth in this room for obvious reasons, right? They're going to go, hey, I'm going to go where? Somewhere else. Right? We're not going to do it in the kitchen. That's where food's made. Uh, maybe the garage. And so this... This changes the idea that they were searching for a place and had nowhere to stay. Um, hospitality is such a huge virtue at this time. Um, there's one of the people that the Israelites were supposed to destroy as part of their conquest of Canaan. And God's reasoning to them, to, to them was they did not greet you in the desert with bread and water. They turned you away. Um, and hospitality is a, such a theme in the Old Testament. Uh, in Hebrews, it talks about don't neglect showing hospitality, for some people have entertained angels unaware. And this harkens back to kind of their their father, Abraham, who saw three travelers coming and welcomed them in. And it turns out this was God in some form appearing to him, um, and he provided hospitality for them. And so hospitality was such a huge thing. We're not We're not getting to the story of the shepherds yet but had the shepherds seen them truly as outcasts bedouin hospitality would have mandated that they drag them back to their tents and give them a place to stay they would not have just let them sleep in a barn or a cave or something like that they would have taken care of them in some kind of way which means they're in someone's home um, now this actually creates a little bit more confusion for us because where is jesus placed in the manger and the manger holds food some people say it holds water either way it's some kind of feeding trough for animals so we go well if it is in the home where's the manger then it's in the home again our understanding of where do humans and people stay at a home is very different than middle eastern homes um and again this is even a even a modern thing there's a there's an area of Cairo called Garbage City. It's run by a lot of poor Christians. They go out into the whole city and they collect garbage. Uh, PBS has a really good special on this part of Cairo. They would collect the trash all the way out where we live. We were kind of a little bit on the outskirts of town. And they would come down the street for free, pick up garbage, take it back. And on the way, you can see three or four guys in the back of the truck hand-sorting garbage. Plastics, tins, aluminums, papers, this. And when they come back into the city... They know this house right here does paper. This house right here does, and everybody recycles. And so they take all this and they recycle it into something else, and then they sell the byproduct. Um, I have a picture. I'm, I meant to bring it today, but it's of these houses. So in 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 Egypt, there's you know 20 million people of the size of I'd say at least inside Beltway Eight, maybe inside Six Ten, or just a little bit spilling out. It's a very small, concentrated area. So all of the houses go up. You know, 12-story buildings, lots of families living, very crowded. And in the first two floors of these 12-story buildings, you would see garbage or recycling raw material. Uh, in the next three or four floors, you would see families. 
you know, the, the balconies have been painted, they had nicer windows, you see laundry hanging outside of them. And then in floor seven, eight, nine, you'd look through the windows and the windows hadn't been done. And they had goats, cows, chickens. It's an urban farm in a building, in an apartment style building. So they just, you know, they left it all concrete up there and you saw hay and you saw people you know, shoveling stuff out the windows. And I mean, where else do you do it in a city as crowded as that? If, if that's your livelihood and that's how you survive, you have the animals in the house. Um, there's also this, there's this Arab saying, which is, you make the thief. So if I have uh, some worker at my house and I leave my phone out on the bed stand and they're doing you know, some electrical work in my bedroom and then I come back and my phone is missing, I can't accuse them of being a thief. I made the thief. It's my fault because I didn't protect it. Uh, if you want to understand Middle Eastern clothing, this is how you understand it. If you show it, it's available for looking, for touching, whatever. If it's covered, it's protected, which is why women cover. You park your car on the street, you might come out, it might be a Mercedes, doesn't matter. You'll see a bunch of kids, you know, jumping up and down on it and playing on it. If you want to protect it, you have to put it in a protected parking garage or pay someone to, you know, shoo kids away. And so it's a very different understanding of public and private space and kind of just what I would view to be a common understanding of, hey, if it's not yours, don't mess with it. Well, for those, it's like, well, if it's not protected, it must be for everybody. So if you had a lawn there, you'd put a fence around it. If you didn't put a fence around it, you'd come out on a Friday afternoon, you'd see families picnicking on your lawn. Um, and so it's just a very, very common uh, thing there. So in, in Garbage City, they have to protect their animals. So you would not leave an animal on the street. You leave an animal on the street, what might happen? It's gone. Might walk off. And somebody would go, oh, well, this is just nobody's because it's obviously here on the street unprotected. So, well, if that's your livelihood, your livelihood just walked off. I had a friend of mine. He ran camels out of the pyramid. Camels, I know a lot of women, when they go to the Middle East, they get an offer of, oh, I'll give you 50 camels to, to marry me. Now, that's probably the best offer you're going to get in terms of just money. Uh, camels are between twelve dollars and $25,000 a piece. And so you calculate that times 50, that's, you know, more than I offered Christy when we got married. <laughs> more than we got now. Uh, yeah, so, you know, it'd be a lot to put up with, but just from a money perspective, it's a, it's a really good deal. Uh, but because of that, these are very expensive animals. And in the same way that we wouldn't leave our car parked on the street with the keys in the ignition because you go, well, somebody's going to steal that thing. They don't leave it out on the street. So I go to his house, and again, like their whole family lives in one building, 12 stories tall. You know, like mom and dad live in this flat, and somebody lives here, and they're, they all have a different flat in the same building. But the first floor of the building was an animal space. I mean, we're in a, a modern city, and I step in the bottom floor, and there's two camels parked there, and one of the 12-year-olds got a hose and a, a big kind of brush broom thing, and he's giving them a bath. And then you walk up into the apartment, one of the nicest apartments I've ever been in. From the outside, it looked like a bomb had gone off, and even in that first floor, it looked terrible. But they would not think of leaving their camel out on the street. They brought it into the building. Okay, let's overlay this with some scripture. Uh, would someone look up 1 Samuel 28, 24? We're not going to do Judges, but someone's going to get Matthew 5, 14 to 15, and then somebody else, Luke 13, 10 to 17. All right, who's got 1 Samuel 28, 24? The woman had a fattened calf at the house 
which she butchered at once. She took some flour, kneaded it, and baked bread without yeast. Okay. Read the line with the calf in it again. The woman had a fattened calf at the house. Okay. Which she at once. There's another translation which says she had a fattened calf in the house. Uh, but at the house, in the house, the point is, this is not kind of a separate, like we think of farming and agriculture in our context, where, you know, you get the farmer's guy's little house and all the other animals are way out there. This is, the, the animal is close at hand. Because, honestly, they're fattening it. And so they sit there and keep feeding it scraps and make sure it's fed and taken care of and protected. Um, and so here we have a context in the Bible where there's a fattened calf that is in the house. Uh, we're not going to read the Judges 11, 29 to 40, but this is the story of Jephthah. And after a, a victory, he makes a weird, weird promise to God where he says, the first thing that comes out of my house, I'll sacrifice to you. Now, what's he expecting? He's expecting an animal, right? With this context, that actually makes sense. Uh, I remember reading that story as a kid, and it's his daughter, and it's a terrible story to read as a kid. A lot of the Bible is terrible stories to read as a kid. Uh, but he sacrifices his daughter, and I, for years I never understood that until I understood, oh, Middle Easterners keep animals inside their house. So it wasn't, it's strange, still strange to me that he followed through on it. I think God would have understood not sacrificing a daughter, and I think God actually says some things of don't do that. Uh, but the promise was not as irrational as it first seems if you understand they keep animals in the house. So maybe the first thing that runs out is his fatted calf. And so he's saying, God, I'm going to, look, we won this thing. I'm going to give you the fatted calf. Uh, who has Matthew 5, 14 to 15? You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone buy the lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and gives light to all those who are in the house. Okay. So it says, you're the light of the world. You, you don't light your candle and put it in a, a bushel. You light it and you put it on a lampstand. And so, you know, here you put it on the lampstand. And what does it do? It gives light to the whole house. How can it give light to the whole house unless it is a one-room style house? Okay, so we're, under, we're understanding more about how they're using animals, how their space is organized. Uh, okay, Luke 10, uh, 13, 10 to 17. Okay. And he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And there was a woman who for 18 years had had a sickness caused by a spirit, and she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are free from your sickness. And he laid hands on her, and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. But the synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the crowd in response, There are six days in which work should be done, so come during them and get healed, and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? And this woman, a daughter of Abraham, as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said this, all his opponents were being humiliated, and the entire crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by him. Um, so it says, out from the stall, but in the Greek, this is the word for manger. Okay, so it's saying, wouldn't you leave 
lead your animal out from the manger. And so he's saying, wouldn't you take your animal out of the house in this scenario on the Sabbath? Of course, and the answer is obviously, yes, you would. So all, take all of these verses together, um, and basically we see that there's, there's no room for him in the, the inn, okay, or the Catalina. This is the upper room. There's no room for him in the guest room. And so she had him in the only other room that made sense, where she could actually get an ounce of privacy, um, which happens to be where the animals are kept. And so all of this is happening all in one house. And so they set him right here. There's some kind of you know little trough, like a little pasture trough thing that they could keep, whether it was food or water, we don't know, but they would keep the animals, um, the animals fed. And so all of this, all of these verses and these stories I've shared show that the animals stayed inside the house where they could be protected from animals that might eat them, from people that might steal them, from them just wandering off. They got four legs, they were wandering. And so um, this seems very different to us. I'll be honest, even in, since I was a kid till now, I've noticed how people view animals in homes being very different. I grew up, uh, you know, dogs stayed outside cats stay like all the animals were outside utilitarian they have a purpose kind of more farm mentality and now people the money people will check down on pets is unbelievable and pets are part of the family and they're in uh you know christmas card pictures and uh you know there are animals now that have their own instagram accounts uh in in fact i was i friend to someone on instagram and on on his page it said hey here's my animals instagram account if you want to follow my dog which i didn't want to follow his dog on instagram have you have you seen this okay yeah um which like this is so so even in our generation animals are taking on a very different role 50 years ago in this country if you did that with a pet people would have probably had you committed um whereas today that's very common uh my younger brother has an instagram for his dog um and he and i work on this this blog project together called terabeza it's a food website um, and both of us promote it. We're putting all of our best professional efforts into this. His dog has more followers than we do. And so, yeah, Hudson is his name. I should, I should have brought the handle in so you could follow him if you want to follow Hudson. But, uh, yeah, Terabeza should get a dog. <laughs> yeah, if the dog was eating the food, maybe. That would be uh, the thing. I was at a restaurant the other day, and these people had a dog in there. And it was not a service animal. It was not a CNI dog. Okay, so already in my lifetime, in ways that you're sensing I'm uncomfortable with, animal, public, private, indoor, outdoor, where we eat versus where your animal should be, all this is getting mixed up. But how we've seen the Christmas story is that because she's in the manger with the animals, this is therefore like an Ohio-style farm where there's this beautiful Norman Rockwell barn out on the property because they're racing through town. And that's not the image we get here. Um... So there's an interesting thing about the town of Bethlehem. Uh, anything that says you see Beth or Beth in uh, uh, in, in this area is the means house, and Lehem means bread. And so Bethlehem is the house of bread. And so here we have this is a really fun part. Here we have Jesus. Jesus is known one of the I am statements. I am the bread of life. And so here we have the bread of life being born in Bethlehem, the house of bread. And so this is just a fun little, fun little linguistic tidbit. But he's born in Bethlehem. This is a city that's so poor and so insignificant. Scholars actually doubted its existence for a long time. Because apart from the Bible, there's not another 
ancient writing about this area. So you can find writings from other places talking about Jerusalem or talking about uh, uh, Nineveh or other places. But Bethlehem is this tiny little hole-in-the-wall podunk place um, that Jesus is born. It's so poor and insignificant that there's not a single reference in classical literature from this period. At the same time, it's hard to have a more human birth than being uh, in a borrowed room in a poor town. I think when we think through our nativity scenes, there are always these pristine, beautiful, uh, sometimes very ornate uh, presentations or representations. And the reality is, is Jesus is born in poverty. Um, I was, it, it was a couple Christmases ago when the refugee Syrian, the Syrian refugee crisis had become really, really big. And I was, this was right at the same time that I was kind of re-studying this story. And I realized the Jesus that we present is often very enculturated in American culture. And I thought, man, my, my friends would love, or, or you know, Syrian refugees would love to hear a story about a man who's born in a town in, the, in that world with no name, essentially, a no-name place, in a room that's borrowed. Um, you know, by the time we get to the end of the story, they're going to be fleeing for their lives. They're going to be on the run. And so this, this negates that kind of pristine image that we create of what his birth was like. It, and it helps us actually theologically understand Jesus is fully God. And we always focus on that side of what it, what it meant for Jesus to have uh, power and the fact that we should worship him and follow him and his authority. Uh, and we don't focus on uh, Jesus' sweat you know, that Jesus would have had body odor, that Jesus was born in a poor family, that his parents would have talked about, you know, what can they get him for Christmas? You know, like the same kind of things that many of us have concerns with uh, in our life, Jesus actually fits right in line with that, which is really different from uh, the Greek system of gods, the Roman system of gods, where these gods were kind of born with a silver spoon in their mouth and are very capricious and very like got into trickery and all this kind of stuff and they live this otherworldly life here we have jesus kind of born down here in the mud with us I mean, he's born in this room right here with the animals um in a very crowded time and so you can't say well jesus doesn't understand what it's like to not have a place jesus doesn't understand what it's like to not have money he doesn't understand what it's like to not have just fill in the blank because actually, he did. He does understand. Thank you for listening to Nations Reaching Nations. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Nation Reaching Nation.